Good morning. Welcome. It's nice and fresh today for a change. In Genesis, when God was cursing Adam and Eve, he said this. He said, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Today, in the traditional calendar, is the first Sunday of Lent. It began on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday, a day when we remember our mortality, our fragility, our vulnerability. It ends with Easter Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection and the hope of new life, but life eternal. We go from from mortality to immortality. And in between, we mortify the flesh. It is the tradition that we deny deny ourselves something that we'd normally desire. Or that we take on board a new discipline. Just to remind ourselves that we are not slaves to our lusts. We are not controlled by our passions. For we look forward to that day when we will be perfected. But today's also Valentine's Day. A day when we celebrate love. When we celebrate relationship. When we celebrate being with other people. Though in a worldly context, it's actually a day when people indulge themselves. It's a day of chocolates and roses and champagne. It's a day when people indulge themselves in each other. It's almost the opposite of the very thing that we're celebrating with Lent. As we gather today... We gather not because we found fulfillment in another person, but because we found fulfillment in the person of Christ and in the one relationship through the Holy Spirit that reconnects us with our Heavenly Father. We gather not because of the fluttering feeling, but because of the love that is real and strong that we have received from God through his sacrifice and blessing. So let us now stand to sing of that love which binds and also sets us free.
Let us pray. God is patient. God is kind. God is love. Heavenly Father, on this day when many celebrate they love the love they have for one another, we thank you for the blessing that loving and being loved brings. Yet may our minds in this time be consumed and our hearts be consumed by the love that you have for us. May we know your sacrifice, the care, the patience you have shown us, the security we find in your arms and your gentle discipline. May we in return love you with a desire that drives us to you, to be like you, to be with you and to be part of all that you are and all that you do. In this world, Lord, where many do not know of true love, where sensuality and abuse have replaced care and trust, may we bring your healing and freedom. Feed us this morning with your word and by your spirit so that we are able to go into the world, into the world that you love, the world that you created and care for, and show your love with the same heart and the same manner that your son showed compassion to those around him. We pray, Lord, not for those who are alone, but those who are lonely, that in you they would find true fellowship, true belonging, and a true sense of value that would enable them to rest from seeking. And may we who are married remember that it is in you that we were and are made complete. We pray now together as one family to our loving Heavenly Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever.
as if there wasn't enough to think about today, with it being the first Sunday in Lent, a day when we traditionally remember Jesus being tempted in the desert, and a day also when it, people remember and celebrate love because it's Valentine's Day. It's also a day when um, we consider the power of the Word of God, and we celebrate the Bible. And as you can imagine, it does mean there's so many things to think about. But I thought, well, what would be more fun and less contentious than a Bible quiz? And then I thought, you know what, let's go the other way. Let's be contentious. And so let's have a wee quiz. Now, there are nine questions. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the nine questions to give you a chance to think about it. And then what I could possibly do is break you up into three parts. I'm not just going to bring you into the choir versus everyone else. But roughly where you're sat. And you can mark off, knock off your remarks. It is contentious. I've been purposely so. It was originally written for teenagers because it's to prompt discussion and thought. But let's be honest, if we ever open the Bible and it doesn't prompt us to have some discussion and thought, then we maybe haven't read it right. Okay, so here's the first question. Um, Can we all see? There are many animals in the Bible. Some we don't know what they are, which is true. And some, actually I don't need to read that way. Some are extinct or the names have changed. But which of the following three are definitely, I'm going to say definitely here, not in the Bible? Dogs? Dinosaurs? Now, I did say it was going to be contentious. Or pussycats. One of those threes, one of those three do not appear anywhere in Scripture. Okay? Right. Question two. Like I said, I'll go through the nine first and then you'll get a chance to answer them afterwards. There are many phrases we often hear in church. Only one of the following verses is actually in the Bible. Which is it? Cleanliness is next to godliness. A man may only have one wife. Spare the rod and spoil the child. Fathers, do not exasperate or annoy your children. Or God helps those who help themselves. Okay? Now I'll repeat, only one of those is actually in the Bible. Okay. Uh, Some nice fact questions for those of you that just like your matter of facts. Christians were first called Christians, Little Christ and Antioch. Before they were Christians, what were they called? Followers of the book, followers of the way, or followers of Jesus? Okay. There are 66 books in the modern Bible written by 40 authors. Who wrote the most books? Not necessarily the most words, but who wrote the most books? Jesus, Moses, or Paul? Are we feeling fairly confident so far? Okay. There are strange occurrences in the Bible. Which of the following animals is not recorded as speaking in any story? A donkey, a snake, an eagle, or a gorilla? One of those did not speak in the Bible. All the rest have had speaking parts. Okay. Right. By modern standards, the Bible can come across as being very strict about sex and marriage. But what was strange about Abraham's marriage to Sarah? Was it they'd never met before their wedding day? That he was 30 years older than her? Or they were half brother and sister? Okay. Sorry, I didn't realize I went somewhere. Right. We all believe as Christians that if God appeared to us, we would do exactly what he told us to do. So which of the following did God tell his prophets to do? Make a fire from human dung and eat off it. Walk about naked for three years. Or pack their bags as if they're going on a long journey, 
but then dig their way out through a hole in the wall. Or all of the above. Okay? Here we have three traditions. Three wise men, Easter eggs and harvest festivals. Which one is scriptural? Um, and number nine, just to finish off with a really nice contentious one. Some words have changed their meaning over the years since the first translation of the Bible into English. The original word for blessing was unction. Love was called charity. And the King James Version mentions unicorns and it mentions it in quite a few places. Is this because they were real but they no longer exist? Is this because they never existed but the translators believed in them? Or is it because they exist in heaven? Okay. So why did the King James... King James translators translate so many words, so many of the animals as unicorns. It is our national animal, for those of you that weren't aware. Okay. Are we happy? Are we ready now to consider the answers? Remember, this is all about knowing the Bible and knowing the Word of God, so this will really try us out. Oh, right. As you can see, I made it for teenagers. Yes. Okay. Number one. There are many animals in the Bible. Some we do not know what they are. But which of these three is definitely not in the Bible? Now remember, we are being contentious, yeah? You're saying dinosaurs. Now, I should have actually given a parental guidance warning here. You're going to have some awkward questions to answer on the way home. (laughs) What about yourselves? What do you think? You think cats? Mm. You're going to say... (laughs) No, no, no. Are you all in complete disagreement? Think you're wrong. Okay, what about yourselves? Uh, no one willing to speak up? Are you thinking, are you playing the contentious card or are you going for the safe card? You're saying dogs? No. No, there is moreover the dog. He came and licked Job's wounds. Though moreover was a bit of a strange name. Uh, are you guys all just playing dumb? Okay. You're saying cats. The correct answer is cats. (laughs) There are no cats in the Bible, rather bizarrely. There is all these other creatures, including ones we don't know, but there are no cats. There is lions, if you want to argue, but aren't they a type of cat? You're going to sit there and say, there are no dinosaurs in the Bible. Please don't tell me you're about to tell me there's dinosaurs in the Bible. There are those who would argue that these descriptions of animals, the behemoth and the leviathan and all these great monsters of animals that we don't know what they are, means that in many commentators would argue that they are these because if you read the description it matches one of these what we call a diplodocus or I would in my limited knowledge of dinosaurs okay now let's go back you may choose to disagree and you are free to disagree but does knowing whether that is referring to a dinosaur or not mean that we do or don't know our word that's what I'm really wanting us to think is knowing the answers. Do, if we know what a behemoth is and we know what a leviathan is, does that mean we know our word of God better than anyone else? Okay? But if you read the description, the behemoth I made along with you, and it feeds like grass like an ox, so it's vegetarian, but it strengthens its loins and power in the muscles of the bellies, and his tail swings like a cedar, like a tree. So if some people think, oh, we're talking about an enormous animal here, and his bones are tube of bronze, his limbs are like rods of iron. If you carry on reading, it doesn't drag its tail. And so people are saying, well, if it doesn't drag its tail... Ah, right. Before I get thrown out for someone saying you're committing heresy here, or, you know. Anyway, next one. Only one of these is actually in the Bible. Go on, choir. I'm not going to let you away with this. Which one is actually in the Bible? Don't exasperate your children. Uh, what about yourselves? You're going for that one. <laughs> I guess so. 
Any choices over here? Which one do you think? You're saying spare the rod is in the Bible? Yes. No. <laughs> it's not. But that's it. People make these claims. I'm surprised no one's picked up. It doesn't actually say this anywhere in the Bible either. It doesn't say anywhere a man can only have one wife. It does say a man cannot serve two masters, but it doesn't say a man can have one wife. Uh, fathers do nice aspirated ch- children I could argue that's a sexist statement but the more I see fathers the more I realise why that was said um, but yeah no and I'm not suddenly making a claim for polygamy here but it does, there is no verse that says a man can only have one wife it does say if you want to be an elder you should only have one wife okay so uh, just a wee throw in there um, a nice matter of fact one okay what were Christians called before they were called Christians let's start with the middle this time followers of the way yeah? Good. Followers of Jesus. What have we got over here? Followers of the way. It would make sense to be called followers of Jesus, and that's what Christians mean, that we're going to be little Christs. But actually, before then, we were called followers of the way, because being a Christian is about being on a journey. And so we followed Christ's way. But good go. Okay. Uh, another nice, safe one. Okay. Who wrote the most books in the Bible? Not necessarily the most words. But who wrote, wrote the most books? Am I accepting who they say? Yep. You're saying Paul? Okay. What about yourself? Paul? Yeah. Nice matter of fact one. Paul wrote most of the books of the Bible, which is why he's often accused of inventing what we believe. Okay. Right. One of these animals didn't get a speaking part. Which animal doesn't get a speaking part in the Bible? Hmm? Well, which one would you say isn't? We've got a donkey, a serpent, and a gorilla. And, sorry, and an eagle. Yep. Hmm? You've seen the gorilla. What about over here? Which animal do you see? Doesn't speak. You're saying the gorilla? You're going for the gorilla. Yeah, fairly safe there. What's kind of nice to think about is the word for eagles and the word for angels is very similar. And so some translations where they have the angels flying throughout the heavens declaring, other translations have the eagles flying throughout the heavens declaring. And so it's a, the words are very similar. Um, the donkey, I'm sure most of you are about, who basically turned on his master and said, look, will you stop hitting me? I'm not going anywhere because the angel's in the way. And the serpent, the great tempter. Um, okay. Again, more awkward questions for children kind of time. But which was stri- what was weird about Adam and Abraham and Sarah's... And- Marriage to Sarah? Mm-hmm. Half brother and sister? Yep. Half brother and sister. And yeah, you go for the same one? It is. They possibly also hadn't met before their wedding day because that would have, may have been a custom, but we don't know. Okay? They were half brother and sister. Uh, three things here. We would all do exactly what God tells us to do. So, what are we going for? Make fire from cow dung? Well, actually. I'll come back to that. Walk about naked for three years or pack your bags and then leave your house through the wall. Get the sledgehammer out, make a hole and go through there. Guys? You're saying all of the above? Okay. Yep. Pack the bags. Have you got a different answer? No. The answer is all of the above. The one on the left about the cow, cow dung, that was a concession. Because when God asked, and I believe I was going to say... Wasn't Isaiah? I should know this. I read it recently. Oh. 
But when he asked the prophet to make a fire, he actually asked him to make it out of human dung. Um, it was when he said, no God, I'm not doing that, that's just too disgusting. He said, okay, you can use cow dung, like that was better. Uh, but yes, this is the kind of thing that God asks his prophets to do. So if you want to be a prophet of the Lord, just be prepared to do something weird. Um, okay, right. Which of the following three traditions is actually biblical? Ooh, I, could, I could do my teacher thing here. Someone who hasn't answered yet. <laughs> yes, go on. Three wise men? Harvest. You're going for harvest? Harvest. Yeah, Passover and... Passover is a harvest festival. Feast of First Fruits is a harvest festival. Tabernacles. There's lots of harvest festivals in the Bible. There are wise men, but not necessarily three. And as for Easter eggs, there's a fantastic story as to where they come from, but it's not biblical. Okay, and just to finish with a nice contentious one. Okay, some words have changed. If you read your original King James, which some would have us believe is the original and only translation, it is filled with unicorns. Okay, there are unicorns in Job, there are unicorns in the prophets, there are unicorns in the Psalms. They're all the way littered through it. Okay, is this be- so that's our three choices. Is that because they were real and they've been hunted to extinction and that's why we don't believe in them anymore? Is it because they never existed but the translators believed in them? Is it because they existed in heaven? Yeah? You think they exist in heaven? Mm-hmm. You think it was the translators in the bit? Okay. What are you going for? You think it was the translators believed in How about yourselves? You think it's the translators' fault? Okay, this isn't as contentious as the dinosaur one. I will say that much. Okay, but the fault is ours, actually. Because it's our mistake that we think a unicorn refers to a horse with a horn. It didn't. If you look at all the descriptions of unicorns, as you see, you've got Numbers, you've got Job, you've got the Psalms. Um, it talks of the mighty big animal with a big horn, and so the literal translation is a unicorn. But it's as big as a bull or a cow. It's bigger than that. And these animals did actually live in our times. Now, I've stuck up some rhinos because a lot of people think rhinos are the modern unicorn. But historically, this animal on the left here is a real animal that did exist in human history. And it was called a unicorn. There were also, when the West India, East India Tea Company went to India, they've sent reports back of these giant animals, almost the size of elephants, with a single horn. The, horn of, the unicorn of scripture is a mighty big animal that can't be tamed, but is strong and mighty. We're not talking about horses with horns. We are talking about a real animal, but it's not what we would call a unicorn anymore. It's just interesting. Language has changed. So the translators didn't get it wrong. We did. We now read unicorn as a horse with a horn. Um, so just a few thoughts. Now, I hope that hasn't upset too many people. Um, how do you think we did? Seven out of nine? Eight out of nine? Any nine out of nine sat there saying, I knew exactly what he was doing? No nine out of nines? Okay. You may want to argue about the dinosaur one later and say, no, it's definitely not a dinosaur. It's referring to crocodile or something or other. Um, part of what we're going to talk about later on and what we're going to consider is what does it mean when we say we know the word of God? What does that actually mean? Does it mean that the ability to win the quiz and get nine out of nine 
Does it mean that we can recite the names of all the major and minor prophets in order? Or even all the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah? What does it mean to know the word of God? There are a couple of verses that are quite often recited. One of which, from Timothy, comes a bit of a mantra. When it says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But that sounds quite academic. One of our verses for later is this. Which has disappeared. And it's the one, the word of the Lord is near. It's in your heart and it's in your mind. You love it, you confess it, and you know it. But one of the things that I don't mind repeating twice is the word of God isn't the words, the physical, what we read in our scriptures. The word of God is Christ. Without Christ, without his spirit, the Bible becomes an academic text. It becomes nothing more than a list of facts, of do's and don'ts, and things you know and things you don't know. It's not just about knowing the printed word. To know the word of God is to have God in your heart. But we'll think more about that later. I hope you enjoyed the quiz. Let us sing Jesus Put a Song into Our Hearts. first reading is from Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil then led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And our second reading is from Romans, chapter 10, starting at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. A scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your written word that we are able to read and to hold freely without fear, without fear of persecution or fear of condemnation. We thank you, Lord, that we can read and discuss and consider and that we are in a safe place to do so. But Father, as we consider your word, is our desire to know your word 
that by your spirit you would speak to our hearts and minds, that we would understand, that we would grow, we would be changed into your likeness. Help us to see, help us to hear, help us to love. We pray also, Lord, for the children that are receiving their lesson, Lord, that likewise, in a manner, in a way that they would understand, in a way that the message would then become their message, they would receive what you have for them, that they too would hear and believe. Amen. If you succumb to temptation, whose fault is it? Yours or the person tempting you. You can't blame an inanimate object. You can never blame the cake for being the reason you ate the cake. On the other hand, if I look at old photos and the last time I saw my grandfather, me and him have pretty much the same physique. In which case I'm thinking, actually, it's not my fault. It's in my genes. I'm not quite sure that that means I've inherited his diet and his physical exercise regime either. But we were the same shape. But given that this is Lent, and I'm sure some of you may have given up chocolates or sweets or whatever, something sweet for Christmas, and I was almost tempted to do this, and I thought, no, you can only push something so far. But if I was to suddenly present your favourite cake, your favourite gâteau, and just put it in front of you, and then talk freely about how freedom in Christ allows us to eat such things, and I could maybe even mention to you that Lent doesn't include Sundays, because... 40 days and nights doesn't actually start till Tuesday because the Sundays are a day of celebration of resurrection. They are not a day of work and therefore we don't fast. I could go on and quite justifiably weaken your resolve until you eat it. Well, unless you're particularly strong and you hit me first. But if you then eat the cake, is that your fault or my fault? It's not a simple question and I hope... We haven't rushed to simple answers. But there are some things about temptation that we can agree on. One of the sad things is, is temptation, the temptations we have, reveal something about ourselves that we may not be prepared to accept. Because we can't be tempted by things that we don't desire. I'm not tempted to smoke. I have no desire to smoke. There are those who are not tempted to drink. They have no desire for alcohol. There are those that do not get into fights because they just don't have the stomach for it. It just doesn't interest them. But if you are someone who likes smoking or likes drinking or likes eating mass foods, who wants promotion at any cost, who likes getting into a fight and really enjoys a good argument, well, then these things will be temptations to you. And sometimes what we are tempted by reveals more about us than we really want to accept because they're not necessarily temptations that we want to have but they're still things we're tempted to do a real temptation must also be plausible I would like to fly but I've never been tempted to give it a go and I very much doubt any of you here have as well I can go up to the highest point of the building as much as I want and with the greatest desire to fly I'm going to fall to the ground So common sense tells me that as much as I desire to fly and would like to fly and would love to be able to do these kind of things, it's not going to happen. So for something to be a real temptation, it must be plausible. There must be something about it that has convinced you that actually this could happen. 
And if this could happen, then the following would happen. And then you can, you can build up a narrative for yourself. And then you dwell on it and you think about it. And that's when we start to maybe think, actually, what would be so wrong? It'd be okay. When we bear that in mind, it's interesting to take this and then read about Jesus being tempted in the desert. Being tempted is a particularly human trait. Because surely being tempted is a sign of weakness. Or is it? The idea that we could be tempted to do something that we shouldn't do makes sense to us because we have to discipline ourselves because otherwise we'd all lead rather reckless lives or maybe even a bit more reckless than we do. Jesus was completely God. Here we have God, totally divine, yet totally human, being tempted. The first temptation reveals this. Jesus is tempted to turn rocks into bread. It is bizarre that the one who is all-sufficient, the great I am, the one who would later feed 4,000 people and 5,000 people and with such an abundance that there would be food left over, would himself be hungry. But this is what the devil's trying to work out in Jesus. Is he totally divine or is he totally human? Because the divine Christ would never get hungry, would never get tired, would never fall ill, would never hurt himself. But the human Christ did. The human Christ got hungry. The human Christ got tired. And it's a challenge, isn't it? In some senses, it's the devil saying, right, if you are totally divine, turn this rock into bread. No big deal for you. And there's part of us that wants to ask, well, Actually, it isn't a big deal. Jesus has gone out into the wilderness and he's fasted for 40 days and nights. So what's the big deal about turning a stone into a loaf of bread? There's nothing wrong about eating bread. There's nothing wrong about being hungry, except for the fact that you are hungry and therefore should eat. Except Jesus would be serving his own needs. Is that also wrong? Temptation doesn't start with something blatant. Nobody ever had, with today's being Valentine's Day, I am going to relate this a little bit to some of the things that people confuse for love. But nobody ever had an affair because someone jumped out of them completely naked. Nobody ever fell into an affair and started committing adultery or got into an appropriate relationship because someone literally just threw themselves at them. I remember once teaching Proverbs to my eldest son. And in Proverbs, you have wisdom and you have temptation, and they're all personified. And I realized that he picked up the wrong end of the stick when he actually was in slightly scared as an 11-year-old that he could walk down the street and this woman would literally throw herself on him. And I was saying, no, 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 you're missing. And thankfully, he, he said it, so I was able to correct him. That isn't how temptation acts. Temptation begins with something subtle. People that end up in relationships that have become unhelpful, that are detrimental, do so because they started by being a good friend, by being a shoulder to cry on, by being the person that was there, 
the one they could listen to, the one they could talk to. And this is common for men and women. One of the things I want to correct later is what form temptation takes. But both men and women fall to the same temptation. That suddenly their emotional energy and their physical energy is being consumed by someone that's there. That's why so many affairs happen at work. Because we go home, we're tired, we go home, we have our dinner, we eat, we fall asleep, we get up, we go to work. And who's the person we sit and have coffee with and talk about how we're feeling? And it's not our husbands or wives. But what's wrong about sitting there and listening to someone else? And you're left. That then becomes, wait a minute. I'm giving my emotional energy. And I'm giving my time. And I'm giving my attention. That I'm not giving my wife. Or I'm not giving my husband. Temptation is never obvious at the first step. The first step is always very subtle. The reason I believe Jesus was tempted to turn stone into bread and why he told this to his disciples is because there is nothing wrong in bread. But here we have Jesus, the second Adam, in the wilderness being tempted with food when the first Adam in the Garden of Plenty was tempted by eating fruit. What's wrong with eating fruit? Well, nothing particularly except God had told them not to do it. Jesus' response to Satan is that man shall not live by bread alone. You're thinking, that's great, but try living without it. But his false quote from Deuteronomy is, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus fed the 4,000, but they would hunger again. Jesus fed the 5,000, but they would hunger again. But today you and I are still being fed by the Sermon on the Mount. We're still fed when we read the Bible. We are still fed when we hear the word of God. It continues to feed. But what did this mean for Jesus? Jesus was being tempted to use his divinity to make his humanity easier. The temptation here was that although Jesus was completely human and completely divine... That by using his divinity, he need never suffer anything as a human. His divinity would allow him never to get hungry. His divinity would allow him never to get tired. But then if he lived his life like that, had he honoured his father by becoming one of us? The ultimate temptation that Jesus was faced with was not to face the cross or to take himself off the cross. Something he had the power to do. And what we see here is not that Jesus didn't have the ability to turn the stone into bread, but that in serving his father, rather than submitting to Satan, now where would that leave us all if Jesus had submitted to Satan? When he became totally human, he became totally human. He hungered, and he satisfies that hunger by eating food like you and I eat food. He became tired, and he satisfied that tiredness by sleeping. No weaving of a magic wand. No using a miracle just to make himself feel better. Yes, he was totally divine. But he became totally human. And with all the difficulties that humanity faced, he didn't use his divinity to make that easier. The second temptation that Jesus felt 
was to bow down and worship Satan. To receive the glory of all humanity. This temptation is a bit more obvious. It's also a lie. Of the three, it's the one that's most blatantly a lie. Is the glory of humanity something for the devil to give? Is it in Satan's power to give Jesus any glory at all? And also, if Jesus had bowed down to worship Satan, what value would that glory be? Temptation always promises that we will achieve something if we follow it. That idea that if I just do this, then this will happen. But temptation doesn't deliver what it promises. Of all the temptations, this is the one that we can most probably relate to. We don't have the power to turn stones into bread, and as we will see, we don't have the power to fly, so we're not going to be tempted to throw ourselves off a building. We do, however, have the power to become someone we're not. When Jesus was being encouraged to worship Satan, well, what's the ultimate act of worship? It is to be like the one that you worship. We become like Christ because that's the one that we worship. Satan had been cast out of heaven for saying, worship me. He's now trying to get Jesus to kind of get on side with that and say, look, we can both rebel against God. And then everyone will follow you. But I'm sure I don't need to explain too much. How many times have you pretended to be someone you're not to gain some popularity, to gain some favor, to become popular, and then realize that it's a hollow friendship? It's not real friendship. It's not real. If you have to be someone you're not to get people to listen to you, to be included, to be part of the gang, to be acceptable, it's something that we as Christians often feel challenged with where the world basically says if you were more like us we would be more accepting of you and we're left with that temptation how can we say this in a way that is accepting and doesn't really upset anybody and actually shows that we're really just the same as you are and then you'll like us and we'll like you when we'll all get on except we know fine well that means that really we're there getting us to follow them We're leaving behind all the stuff that we value, all the stuff that we cherish. The curious thing about this temptation is, did Jesus desire to be glorified by the nations? Was this a temptation that the devil was able to give to Jesus because that's what he wanted, was to be worshipped and glorified by all of humanity? Jesus desires for us to have his heart. Jesus is not out there for vain glory. He's not desiring us all to bow down and worship him because he has some ego that needs fed that we have to keep bowing down and worshiping him because if we stop, he's insecure and starts panicking. That's what it can sound like sometimes when we talk about a God who calls us to worship him, that somehow he's created us to worship him because actually without us, his life seemed hollow and empty. No. God desires our hearts because he knows that in him we find true life. We find an abundance of life. We find holiness, we find purity, we find completeness. We find family and community. 
Jesus' desire to see us changed isn't because he needs us to be like him. It's because it's best for us to be like him. The devil is shallow. The temptation was shallow. It was hollow. It was looking at the superficial level, the surface level, feeding the eagle. But then again, isn't that what temptation is about? Isn't that what flirting is about? Feeding the eagle. Feeding that little bit that makes you feel that little bit more important because you've got people's attention and they all seem to like you. But no, that's not the kind of glorying, the kind of worship that Jesus is looking for. It is worth noting, of course, that Jesus rebukes Satan not by the authority that Jesus has. He rebukes Satan with the word of God. In each case, he turns back to him and says, um, you know, man shall not live by bread alone, quoting from Deuteronomy. He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, again, quoting from Deuteronomy. And he will go on to say, you shall not test the Lord your God, quoting again, oddly enough, from Deuteronomy. Jesus could have stood just said, I am the Lord your God, how dare you test me? But he didn't. It would be easy to then say that every temptation we face can be rebuked by just simply quoting the word of God. But this is where we're going to come back to it because the next temptation undermines that a little. Because that temptation, it's Satan that's quoting the word of God. It's Satan that's quoting from the Psalms. He says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Satan's quoted an entire passage. Satan has quoted the word of God. So surely it must be true. What's wrong with it? He's also being slightly subtle. It does undermine the idea that just because we can quote the word of God doesn't necessarily mean that we are living the word of God. It undermines the idea that somehow just being able to recite this verse or quote that justifies any argument we have. But he's doing something different. He's not challenging Jesus directly this time. He's challenging the Father. He's tried to challenge Jesus' humanity and say, look, I know you're doing this human thing, but if you use your divinity, that'll be fine. You know, you can get by all these difficulties. He's then challenged his divinity by saying, look, you can be glorified as a God should be, but just if you do this. He didn't get anywhere, so he's tried the third thing. Look, I know you're going through all this and you're relying upon your father, but I'm not actually sure that you can trust him. So having tried the humanity and divinity, he's now having a go at, are you really the son of God? Does your father really care for you in the way that you think? It's a deceitful temptation. Because it causes Jesus not to question himself, but question then his father. Jesus just rebukes him. It's the bluntest rebuke he gives. You shall not test the Lord your God. But I think that sometimes we fall for a part of the deceit that's in this temptation. If we read commentaries, they quite often say the temptation here was for Jesus to reveal his glory and then everyone would have worshipped him and that would have meant he didn't have to go to the cross. And I think, no, that's the lie. Jesus did many miracles. He still went to the cross. 
He not only fed the hungry, he raised the dead, he cured the sick. He did everything that people wanted them to do. They still didn't follow him. He was still crucified. But if you'll allow me a pause a minute, because in this story, in this word, Satan is personified. Satan comes in the shape of another person. And throughout Christianity, we have wrongly presumed that our temptations come from outside. Our temptation, if we fall to sin, and I asked you at the start, provocatively maybe, that if you succumb to temptation, whose fault is it? The suggestion being that when you sin, it's because you were led astray. That when we fall into temptation, we blame the other person. But the reason I want to mention this today on Valentine's Day is I've mentioned affairs, I've mentioned adultery. Historically as a church, we've blamed women for far more than they are actually guilty of. We have personified temptation in female form and said if a man sins, it's because of the woman. This is not scriptural and it's also untrue. Our temptations come from within us. Our temptations are a reflection of our own desires. Our temptations are what we have thought in our heads, in our hearts, in our minds, and sometimes what we've said out loud. Because there's nothing worse than believing that you've acted in such a way, therefore she owes me. I've been nothing but a good friend to her, therefore she should do things for me. Or she's been nice to me, therefore she obviously wants me to take things further. And I'm being quite blunt about this because I still hear it. I still hear it in schools. I still hear it when I go into the jail. I still hear it. And our society isn't the worst. But this idea that somehow a man is not in control of his emotions and therefore if a woman is nice to him, she owes him. It is hard enough for someone who's been attacked or assaulted or abused to feel like it's their own fault, that they maybe shouldn't have dressed a certain way, acted a certain way, said a certain thing. But that's untrue. Women who wear burqas get attacked. To put it in a blatant form, children get attacked, boys as well as girls. You cannot blame children. If we believe that succumbing to temptation is the fault of another person, we are deluding ourselves. And yet we still live in a society where there is an expectation on other people to fulfill your desires. There's an expectation on other people to satisfy your sensual needs. And therefore, if they don't meet those needs, you're just going to take them. That if you act in a certain way to persuade them otherwise, it will happen. Jesus was tempted to turn a stone into bread. There is nothing wrong in bread. But we also see that just because you desire something doesn't mean that you should have it. Just because you desire something and it's within your grasp doesn't mean you should take it. Today, on Valentine's Day, there are many people whose idea of love and whose idea of faithfulness, whose idea of is twisted. 
It has more to do with control and power and getting what you want. And I've heard so much trot said about this that I feel that it's maybe right that from the pulpit we correct it and say it's not the fault of the person who you've used. It's your fault. It was your heart. It was your mind. It was what was in your head. It was your imagination that got the better of you. It was the lie that you chose to believe that started off with, oh, they're nice, and ended up somewhere it really shouldn't. This is why the ability to control ourselves, the the discipline of denying yourself something that you want when it doesn't matter is important. There are some people who, who rubbish some of the old Christian traditions. You know, why go through Lent and just give up something for no other reason other than proving you can? And the best reason I was ever given was because if you can't do it when it doesn't matter, how are you going to manage it when it does? If you live a life where you are constantly satisfying every desire you have, what are you going to do when your desire is something you shouldn't do? Discipline, although not a popular word, is sometimes necessary. But temptation does absorb you. It consumes us. And this is why people end up behaving in such extreme ways to satisfy their desires. This is why what we understand by knowing the word of God is so important. It isn't the ability to just say, well, the Bible says this is right, therefore I will do that. The Bible says this is wrong, therefore I will do that. For the Bible has been quoted in many a courtroom to justify some of the most heinous crimes. But what did we read in Romans today? The word The word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart. It is the word of faith that we are proclaiming that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts him will never be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Growing up in the Catholic Church as I did, when they read the gospel, the priest would say, this is the word of the Lord. And we, as the congregation, would all respond by saying, thanks be to God. And we would put a little cross on our foreheads, a cross on our mouths, and a small cross on our hearts. We committed it to our minds, we confessed it with our mouths, and we treasured it in our hearts. If we are consumed by the word of God, it is very difficult to then be consumed by anything else. It's not in the quoting of scripture that we find ourselves defended from temptation. But in our hearts and our minds and our mouths being consumed with something else, there is not the gap, the space to be tempted. Now, don't confuse me, I'm not saying that we will never succumb to temptation. But something that they do here in Romans, and if we read back into the Old Testament, there's always been there. The word of God isn't knowing your scriptures to quote them, though that is a worthwhile experience. The word of God is Christ. It is not the printed word, it is the living word. With Christ in our hearts, Christ on our minds, 
Christ on our tongue. And by the power of his Holy Spirit working in us to transform us, to change us, we become consumed, we become changed. That is when the power of the word of God is at work. Yes, read your Bibles from Genesis 1 through to Revelation 22. I would encourage you to do so. Yes, memorize as much as you can. Do all you can to put the printed word of God into action. But without Christ and without the Spirit, it is just an academic exercise. For it is in Christ that the living word became live, became manifest, became incarnate. To know the word of God is to know Christ. And as we go into the world about us, The people who do not read the printed Bible read us. In the same way that Christ was the witness to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those around him of what the living word of God was like, of what it meant to live by the spirit of the word, not just the printed word, we too are those same witnesses. No, we are not Christ, but we are Christians. And by our lives, by our actions, by our speech, by the things we desire... We bear witness to a purer love, to a truer love, and a different love that the world knows. And so no, quoting scripture at people and quoting scripture at inanimate objects or at things doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose that temptation. But by becoming consumed, that's how we know that, yes, Satan can quote scripture, but Satan has no desire He does not have Christ. He has no desire to be like Christ. We know the word of God. For the word of God is Christ. In the beginning was the word. And the word became flesh. The word became human. The word was tempted. But did not succumb to temptation. The word grew hungry and tired. And the word was crucified. Because that was Christ fulfilling the word. We do need to know the word better than we do. We always will. But it is in Christ that we will find our fulfillment. That we find our salvation. Freedom from sin. Freedom from evil. Freedom from death. Sorry if I've gone on a little bit longer. Let us stand now to sing Jesus Tempted in the Desert.
Let us pray. God of love, hear the cry of those who yearn for love. Fractured families, broken homes, neglected, unwanted, alone. God of love, hear our prayer. God of justice, hear the cry of those who yearn for justice. Persecuted and oppressed, exploited, ill-treated, broken. God of justice, hear our prayer. God of healing, hear the cry of those who yearn for healing, both physical and spiritual, hurting, weakened, depressed. God of healing, hear our prayer. God of mercy, hear the cry of those who yearn for mercy. In need of your grace, humble and bowed down, God of mercy, hear our prayer. As we journey into Lent together, may this time of silence, listening and distance amplify the word and presence of God in all our lives. Amen. Father, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for the practical needs of day-to-day life that have been met, for bills that have been paid, and for food that has been bought. And Lord, we pray 
for these finances that we offer to you, that you would use them for your purpose. You'd give clear guidance to those who've been appointed to know what happens with them. And that as always, they would achieve far more than money alone can, that they would go with your blessing. Amen. Let us conclude our singing by singing hymn number 330, Come, Let Us Sing. God of love, our Heavenly Father, strengthen you and work in you to love others. May the sacrifice of his Son be ever on our minds to motivate us and drive us on. May his spirit of resurrection, our comforter and counsellor, be ever present restoring and renewing our hearts and relieving our pains. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.